0: Hi, friends, and welcome to another RobCast. And I'm here with my beloved friend, Peter Rollins. Pete, you want to say hi?
1: Hi.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Friends, this one right here, um, I don't even know. Well, here's where we start. We're going to start with uh, a bit of background on who Pete Rollins is. Perhaps you've heard of the legend of Pete Rollins? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so... Years ago, this was probably 2007, I heard that there was this philosopher in Belfast named Peter Rollins who was doing this really fresh stuff, and I came across a book that he'd written, which was his first book. That was your first book, right? Yeah. How Not to Speak of God. Yep. Yeah. And the book was so fresh... And I felt like he was so far ahead. And in it, he talked about this thing that he was doing called Transformance transformance Art.
1: Art, yeah, that's true.
0: And uh, I was just so captivated because I had this sense like, this guy in Belfast, Northern Ireland is talking about what everybody else is going to be talking about in a decade. Um, Pete has a BA. I have your Wikipedia right here. (laughs) Pete Rollins has a BA in honors in Scholastic Philosophy. A master's in political theory and social criticism, and a PhD dealing with post-structural theory.
1: Although technically, I came out of school with no qualifications at all. I completely <laughs> flunked school and uh, didn't. Did you go really? Any, yeah, completely flunked. I got one C in computer studies at sixteen years old, and left with nothing.
0: So you. So you went from like terrible grades to a PhD?
1: Yeah, like terrible grades. I went to a really rough school, um, and nobody in Belfast. Yeah, yeah. Nobody in my school, virtually nobody, would go to university.
0: And what did you think you were going to do with your life?
1: Oh, I had no idea. I was just mucking around, drinking and hanging out.
0: Had no, <laughs> no idea. But you went in a very narrow period of time from mucking about. Yeah. To a PhD in post-structural theory.
1: Yeah. I was When I was in my late teens, I discovered an interest in the academic world and in thinking. And, um, and then I just I took to it like a duck to water. But it took that long. You know, I, I was always a late developer. I didn't talk until I was about three years old. I didn't walk until I was a lot older than everybody else. I was a very slow developer.
0: So if I would have met you at 15 were you into
1: oh completely different completely different type of person like
0: what like sports video games like what would you have been
1: video games and very probably a bit of a an introvert um but yeah not interested in philosophy or theology or anything like that at all
0: (laughs) (laughs) i love it yeah that is so and then in this incredibly how old were you when you got your phd
1: I was uh, twenty nine, maybe in my late twenties.
0: So, like a ten year span.
1: Yeah, so I, I went to university. I had to do this little course to get me in, um, and then when I passed that, I did my degree for three years. I did my masters in a year. I took a year out, and then I did my PhD in three. So, what
0: were, you, what, <laughs> if what were your parents? How were your parents responding to this? Because this was a bit of a turn
1: yeah it was quite funny because they always they they didn't quite believe it they were very supportive but every time i would come home they would say things like oh you know have you dropped out of university are you still passing your exams and i was actually doing quite well and uh i think they were always surprised when i got my degree they were very shocked and then the masters they were very shocked and then the phd they were very shocked so all the way through (laughs) i think they they felt is this really the same peter that that we we knew yeah uh,
0: amazing okay so i read this book by this irish philosopher and i and i'm s- so sort of i have to learn everything i can from this man so i was going to be in dublin and i tracked your email down somehow Yep. and i email pete and I say, if I was in Belfast, if I could get to Belfast, could we have lunch together or something? Yep. So I show up at the train station in Belfast.
1: I'm very surprised at this, by the way. I ask uh, Rob, you know, why, why are you here in Belfast? And you're like, I'm here to see you. And I'm thinking, in Belfast, people don't cross the street to see me, let <laughs> alone come up from Dublin or come over from America. So I was very shocked. That I only realized at the train station that you were actually there to talk to me.
0: I was there to talk to you. Yeah. This was the summer. This was July of 2008. And I think we talked for two or three days straight.
1: Yeah, it just kept going. That's funny. It was initially a lunch that turned into like three days. I think I
0: literally <laughs> stayed for a while. And then Pete has written How Not to Speak of God, The Fidelity of Betrayal, The Orthodox Heretic what other books oh, you're doing pretty good The divine magician yeah there's one more in there
1: uh two more insurrection insurrection the idolatry of god
0: the idolatry of god so right away everybody we're giving him points for fantastic titles and yeah. i am a you love you'd love good titles i so love i'm going
1: to take pure... that as a great compliment
0: <laughs> absolutely a good title for me is just pure joy um and how, when, like, let's say you meet somebody on an airplane and they say, "Tell me about your work," or "What is your work rooted in," or "What are you trying to do," or "What," how do you explain to people your work?
1: Oh, that it, it chops and changes. But yes. at the moment, what I would say is that many of us live under the tyranny of seeking certainty and satisfaction, the tyranny of happiness. That in our society, we're free to pursue our our highest pleasure. But actually what we need is the freedom from the pursuit of our highest pleasure, the freedom from the pursuit of certainty and satisfaction to embrace unknowing, to embrace not having. And um, so my work is partly about exploring why we're so obsessed with wanting the answers and wanting something that will satisfy our soul. By the way, that's not just in religion, that's in the secular world. If you want to hear a sermon about living forever, uh, getting rid of your flesh and transcending into the heavens where you will know all things. You don't go to the Baptist church, you go to a TED Talk, right? You know, you, 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 <laughs> you, if you want if you want to find pastors and preachers of, of perfection, go to LA, Vegas. Those people, every corner, someone's saying you can have happiness if you take ayahuasca or if you win the lottery or if you get famous. And so my work is about exploring how we we fall for this and we want this, uh, but also how we can free ourselves from it and learn to have a much healthier form of life, not just as individuals, but actually as societies as well.
0: And this is what so inspires me about so much of your work is there is this passion and drive to help people be healthier. Yeah. Um, how, like the your book, The Idolatry of God which come on folks how's that for a title tell me how how would you explain to people how you work that out in the idolatry of god
1: yeah so in the idolatry of god i kind of argue that the word god has come to mean having the answers being in the right group uh having that which will satisfy you and make you whole and i kind of argue that that's a type of idolatry uh, that when we hold up anything as offering the solution like that, it becomes an idol that ultimately gives us the opposite. It's kind of like saying every time someone promises heaven, there's hell to pay. Every time someone says, I can give you everything you need, there's gonna be a downside to it somewhere. And so I, I critique this notion of religion and how it actually bleeds out into secular society as well. And then I try to offer up a very different understanding of faith One that is about uh, being comfortable with complexity, with ambiguity, with unknowing. One that has a space for sadness as well as joy, for the low times as well as the good times. Uh, Because being human is about uh, not trying to run away from the difficult things in our lives, but finding a way of being able to bear them, being able to rob them of their sting. So a lot of my work is about saying, the more we try to run from those painful parts of ourselves, the more haunted we are by them. That's kind of a theme that I use actually, is the idea that we're haunted houses. We're, we're all full of ghosts. The people who are listening to this podcast maybe have relationships where they've been hurt or where they've hurt other people or they're in uh, relationships that are damaging or jobs that are destructive. And the more we try to run from those feelings, going out and getting drunk on Saturday or going to church on a Sunday morning to try to forget about it, the more they come back at night and poke at us and prod us and come out in fits of rage or in in depression. And uh, that actually what we have to do and what faith asks us to do is not run from our ghosts, but rather face them. And in that way, they become holy ghosts.
0: Ah, I love it. I love it when when I've heard you talk about how a ghost something from your past, something that's a wound, a uh, something you've been holding down it uh, when you face it, acknowledge it, shine the light on it, embrace it, live with it it becomes a holy ghost yeah, but otherwise it becomes something else a
1: poltergeist absolutely I mean, my analogy for this is uh... Scooby Doo, right? <laughs> Scooby Doo is a genius. I'm actually writing a book about this at the moment where I Are use really? Scooby Doo. Yeah. Uh, the, the, the first section is called Fulfilling Your Dreams, a Horror Story. <laughs> the idea being that, I mean, I love the New Age saying, fulfill your dreams. Uh, but, you know, I go, like, definitely fulfill your dreams so that you can experience the abject horror of them, so that you can experience <laughs> the fact that they don't work. <laughs> That if your dream is to have millions of dollars, yeah, get it, so you realise how how impotent it is. But the thing about Scooby-Doo is Scooby-Doo starts off as a horror story, right? And what I say, in in life we we can experience that kind of horror, right? Uh, Things are difficult in our lives. And then we realise it's a ghost story. So actually in Scooby-Doo they start off in like some haunted mansion and there are these ghosts and ghouls and monsters. So there, there's this haunted aspect. But then we discover, it's actually a detective story, that the ghosts really hide something very material and concrete, a crime. Somebody's trying to scare everybody away so that they can have the hidden treasure for themselves. And so my argument is that that we as human beings need to look at the difficult parts of our lives, realize that we're haunted by ghosts, but then be detectives and work out that those ghosts are connected to very, very real parts of our lives that we're not looking at, that we have to deal with. And if we go through those three phases uh, and, 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 and work through those painful parts of our lives, then there's something beautiful at the other side of this. And by the way, I mean this as politically as well, that whole societies that say, we are the city on the hill, we are we are perfect, things are good. We're exceptional, we're, we're
0: the exceptional. greatest nation on earth, we're a chosen nation, we're whatever.
1: Exactly. If you have a society that does that, then the darkness is hidden. It's pushed away and it comes out in explosions of violence, in racism or in sexism or in all sorts of other ways. And actually part of a healthy society is, is actually looking at those people difficult and dark parts of your past and your history and of your present. Bring them to the light of day, wrestle with them and look at them. And that very act will help heal society and help create a healthier society.
0: How did, so true, how did you in studying philosophy, how did, which I know for many people philosophy I know it's not, but for many people, it's like that's abstract big ideas from Europeans over the past 500 years or 2,000 years or whatever. How did your work take you into such personal depths?
1: Yeah, I mean, philosophy used to be a technology. Uh, It was called a technology of the self. So in the earliest days of philosophy, it was about transforming yourself. Uh, So Socrates was this person who walked around and caused all manner of problems because he questioned things. He, he challenged people, uh, not because he wanted to sit down and have an abstract conversation, but f- because he wanted real transformation. And in fact, he was brought into court and he was condemned to die. And before they pronounced sentence on him, they said, if, if you were us, uh, what, would you, what, what would your judgment be? You know, How should we punish you? And he said, you should give me free food and free wine for life. He said, because that's what I, <clears throat> sorry, because he said, I am, I am a thorn in the side and that's what society needs. But they didn't take his advice, they executed him. Um, so for me, philosophy fundamentally has always been a technology, a way of transforming society and individuals. And that's why I went into philosophy late. You know, I said I came out of school with mm-hmm. no qualifications. I was in Belfast, where I was seeing violence everywhere. I was seeing people being destroyed by uh, religious and political notions, and so I started studying philosophy concretely to see if it could have anything positive to say in that environment. Because That's why I've never, I've never been, I've never taught in a university. I mean, I teach in universities occasionally, but I've never worked for a university because for me, philosophy is not something that you study in university. is something that should be studied and explored in real life.
0: So I know for for many people, uh, when they think of Belfast, they think of the Troubles, the 80s, the 90s, the images that we saw on television. I remember when I was there with you, you took me to sort of the center of the city where that side of the street is that group and that side of the street is that group, Mm -hmm. Catholics, Protestants. How far did you live from the center of, of the Greatest Conflict? Uh,
1: so I grew up um, a few miles from the real tough place. And a few miles doesn't sound like much, but actually in Northern Ireland, you know, you could live on one street and there'd be you know, daily uh, you know, bomb scares and checkpoints. And one street over would be relatively calm. Really? Yeah, but, but then I moved into an area called the village and lived uh, some of my adult life there, and that was a, an estate. That was a more violent area. So I saw firsthand you know, what it was like to live you know, with, with constant fear, constant intimidation, uh, with violence on the streets, rioting, uh, all of that.
0: And that was walk out the front door, <clears throat> turn left, turn right, and there are beatings, checkpoints militia coming down i mean is it that sort of what's it like
1: well occasionally i mean i do remember one time cycling down the road and i came to a police block and uh, i was like no i live i live in that house over there and so they let me through the police block and you're cycling through a riot and then i remember getting into my house and turning on the tv and i could see a picture of my house from a helicopter <laughs> I was like really This is very surreal, yeah. But that, that was very occasional. That wasn't that wasn't common, but there, there were strange surreal moments like that. And so
0: and and so your work in many ways began with why is this the way it is? Mm-hmm. And how could this be made better? What yeah. are the underlying currents? That have created this world that I come from.
1: Yeah, and and for me, Belfast was simply an extreme form of universal problems. Uh, so if you know, if I'm a doctor and I want to teach you what cancer looks like, I might show you an extreme form of cancer so that you become better at identifying less extreme forms. So, so the for- more
0: broad it is, the easier it is to spot the different components. Yeah. So, so that Belfast, when it becomes it was- more smaller and concentrated, you can. Do your work.
1: Exactly. Well Belfast became a, a the place where I saw how religion and politics and and and, and 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 can can divide people and I saw how walls could be built between communities. And to be honest, that became a, a very particular circumstance that I think described problems that we see all over the world.
0: Ah, got it. Now <laughs> You start this group called Icon, yeah, which I had heard about, and it's like a gathering. Do you want some water? Yeah. Um. And I remember reading about some of the things you were doing with Icon. Yeah. Like the one on the end of the world.
1: Oh yes, yes. Uh-huh. How do
0: you explain what Icon was and? Uh, what you were doing with that.
1: Yeah. So Icon became a space where we really tried to um, critique our religious backgrounds. We, it was a place of disruption. It was a place where you went and through ritual and poetry and music and art. You tried to uh, interrogate the deepest parts of yourself. And, and ultimately, you know, I'm talking about ghosts where I'm saying, you know, we're all haunted. And if we push those ghosts down, they come out in terrible ways. So, for example, in a family, if if there's something has happened—a death of someone in the in the family—and nobody talks about it, and everybody pretends that everything's fine, then then it comes out in other ways. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can you can tell, and it's called symptoms. Um, and so, icon is saying that when we push down our pain and our unknowing and our doubts, they, they create problems. So ICOM was a place where we brought that stuff to the surface, where we try to um, uh, bring things like doubt and unknowing into the light. So for example, in a lot of churches at the time, uh, doubt was seen as a bad thing, questioning was seen as negative. And so you had all these Josh McDowell books, you had apologetics, you know, people would read all of this stuff. And you would think that someone who read all of this apologetics must be very certain of their faith. But actually, if you were certain about your faith, you wouldn't really have to read all of that stuff. What, <laughs> what it generally hinted at is actually that you had lots of doubts in you, but you couldn't bring them to the surface. Hence, you obsessively read all of this apologetics. So in Icon, we created a space where we said, not that you should ask questions or have doubts, but actually you already do have questions and doubts. Let's bring that up and, uh, and, and not try to deny it. And so, so that's, that was the underlying motivation for a lot of what we did.
0: Tell me, um, the, the end of the world, you did one on the end of the world. So I would go to this pub where there would yeah. be an icon gathering. But I remember you telling me about the end of the world one which one was it you was Were you were having like a singer or something who didn't show oh yes that's right that's right we did it we did this gathering oh yeah. folks you're gonna love this by the way that's i just have right. to say i do i do i did like this
1: one so yeah every month was very different it was an immersive experience we call it transformance art because it was like performance art but with the idea that you would be transformed and so this this one yeah on the end of the world we had this well-known musician playing a well-known speaker who was going to be there and uh, mm-hmm. we had but we were running late. We were always running late in Nikon and we were setting up so we had everybody stand outside while we were setting it up. And we're saying, listen, we're going to start any time now, you know, any time. And then eventually we brought people in and we said, okay, another five minutes, we're doing sound checks and we did all of that. Uh, The musician was going through the song list. The speaker was getting the the pulpit ready. And there are all these images of people waiting at bus stops and this kind of thing. And somebody every five minutes would get up and say, listen, we're still waiting for someone to arrive here. We're still waiting for things to 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 be finished. So we'll start any time now. Um, and eventually, what people realized, because the service was called Second Coming, actually that was it. It was about the Second Coming, and they began to realize that that this idea that we're going to start any minute, we're just waiting for someone to arrive, was the actual service. So we're we're sitting there waiting for something, waiting for someone to arrive who never who never arrives, and that that was a way for us to explore the idea of expectancy of waiting. Um, w- There's a a philosopher, Derrida, and he talks about how um, in in words like democracy and in words like justice, there's always a promise of something to come that hasn't arrived yet. So if anyone ever says justice is here, be very careful because that will become unjust. Every time we try to put justice into action, it, it can be good, but there'll always be something that's not quite just. That's why we're always having to change and develop and and whatever. And so in this gathering, we were trying to explore how in words like religion, democracy, love, there's always a promise of something to come. And it never quite comes. It's like the Buddhist idea of if you ever see the Buddha on the road, kill him. In a sense, every time the Buddha concretely appears, it's not the Buddha. It's less than the Buddha. The Buddha is something that you cannot quite grasp that you're always drawn to. And so in the same way, Meister reckart says, every time you say God, you say less than God. There is something in that word that is always ungraspable, always to come. And so, yes, in the second coming, we just explored artistically that
0: kind of notion. <sighs> <laughs> I love it. And uh, so now I assume there's, there's a Scooby-Doo book coming. Yes. Of some form. Well, yeah, it's going to be three sections. And the first section is the,
1: uh, uh, you know, uh, fulfilling your dreams, a horror story. <laughs> the second section is a
0: ghost story. And the third is a detective story. So it's got that, those three elements. I love it. So, so we have the Scooby-Doo book in the works, but now you're also doing something right now that you're inviting people to be a part of, which I would love for you to talk yeah. a bit
1: about. So I, for but around 20 years ago, uh, in 1998, actually, the very year that the peace treaty was signed in Northern Ireland, I started a, a thing called Atheism for Lent. Atheism for Lent? Atheism for Lent. And it was inspired <laughs> by a book by a, a guy called Merrill Westphal called Suspicion and Faith. He was a, a and he still is, um, a conservative Christian philosopher, uh, but who feels that Marx and Nietzsche and Freud and these thinkers Are actually profoundly useful for faith that that people who call themselves christians will learn so much from these thinkers and he put out a challenge to read them over lent as a kind of purifying ritual
0: so in the what seven weeks leading up to resurrection sunday yeah his challenge was to read the great critiques of religion specifically the christian faith yeah because that is how one of the ways that you grow
1: Yeah. I mean, what better way of of approaching that moment where Christ cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, than reading someone like Nietzsche or reading someone like Freud? So I find this fascinating and uh, I took up the challenge. And what I developed is a course where for every day of Lent, you get a little fragment of a philosopher or a podcast or an interview that's a critique of religion. A critique of Christianity, and the the idea is that you don't judge it, but you let that judge you, and because the truth is, at the moment you see this battle between atheism and theism, and it's like you know there's one side and then there's the other side, and they're all at battle. And they
0: all have believers, not believers. Yeah. All this just sort of back and forth. Back and
1: forth, but actually, the best atheism and the best theism have never had that conflictual relationship. Uh, you know, there, there's been a mutual learning. Some great theologians sound like atheists and some great atheists sound sometimes ki- like they kind of believe something. For example, you know, uh, Paul Tillich. Paul Tillich's notion of God uh, is that he says, imagine two people Paul
0: Tillich lived in the uh, wrote in the nineteen ten nineteen twenties in there. Yeah,
1: so kind of mid legendary,
0: century. legendary theologian. Yes, an amazing theologian. Someone who uh,
1: I've learned a lot from, but he had a view of God that that was quite interesting. Where he would say, imagine two people stand up to argue about the existence of God, and one of them's arguing that God, you know, doesn't exist, and saying like, look at all the wars. Look at all the the, the torture. Look at all the violence that's been done in the name of God. Look at all the horror that's been perpetrated by the religious institution claiming that name. And then the other person says, but look at all the good. Look at liberation theology. Look at the, 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 the end of slavery. And look at all of these things that Christianity was involved in that are positive. Paul Tillich says, those two people share something very important in common. They both have a deep care and concern for the world. Mm-hmm. And he says, God is the name I give to that which is affirmed in care and concern for the world. So when you listen to that, you go, you know, if you're an atheist, you might go, well, I, you know, but that's quite a nice idea of God. God is, is not some, some being that I believe in out there. God is the name that's given to the, the idea that the world has depth and density. I can kind of like that. And so suddenly it becomes a little bit, oh, maybe I'm not as anti-theist as I thought or anti-atheist as I thought. Whenever you read, say Freud, for example, and Freud says, kids, when they have anxiety, create rituals to protect themselves. So for example, a child might want to be read the same story every night. Uh, This is a ritual that helps them feel safe in a world that's unsafe, and that's great. Kids have rituals. But as you grow, if you don't let go of those rituals, you become obsessive. So uh, obsessives might clean obsessively. They might rearrange their garage. So it's perfect. They, you know, obsessives might have rituals that they have to achieve before they go out into the world and the rituals become a form of suffering. And so Freud says, you know, to be a loving parent is to very gradually help your child deal with the anxiety that the ritual covers over. So eventually the parent has to say, I know that you can never go out of the house before 10 o'clock because you're scared of something, but you know what, we're going to have to do it today, but we're going to do it together, right? So the the parent very gradually helps the child feel the anxiety and, and get over the anxiety. And Freud says, well, sometimes religion can be like that. We, end, we do religion because we're actually scared of something. We're scared of dying or we're scared of, scared of uh, you know, things not meaning anything. And, and actually, the ritual prevents us from looking at our anxieties. So if you're a believer who goes to church and you read that, you might go, yeah, that's really interesting. You know, I don't want my faith to just be a way of protecting myself from anxiety. I think my faith should be something that helps me work through that and so suddenly you're like oh, this is not an enemy of mine this is actually a friend someone who i can really learn from so atheism for lent is a way of helping people see that that this distinction between atheist and theist is much more porous than we imagine you know? i love it okay so people can sign up and do this with you oh yeah so if you want to sign up for this you'll get a reading or a reflection every day of Lent. And then I also am giving a lecture that you can watch online or download, uh, introducing the material of each week. So for three weeks, we'll look at philosophical atheism, from new atheism to kind of Marx and Freud and whatever. And then for three weeks, we'll look at uh, theological Mm -hmm. atheism. And that's the more weird thing because people say, well, how can you have theological atheism? But uh, some of the mystics, sound very atheistic at times when they say things like, every time I say God, I say less than God. Or, or, God is that which is greater than I could ever conceive. When you think about those, you go, oh, that's a very strange form of theism. Mm-hmm. Because in a sense, it's of saying that, or someone says, God is affirmed, like Mother Teresa, God is affirmed in the orphanages that are built for those who suffer. God is affirmed um, in, in the homes that are built for the homeless. Okay, that's that's an interesting notion of theism that also sounds like an atheist could believe that, you know. So we're going to explore all of those issues. And by the way, apart from that, the truth is, if you're a pastor and you preach every week and you preach well every week, still on Monday or Tuesday, you might go, I wonder if actually this is just, you know, all made up. Maybe it's just because that's the way I was brought up. Maybe that's because what my parents taught me. Maybe I'm just scared. I don't know. And so even if you're a believer, there's little bits of atheism in you, or if you're an atheist and then every now and again, you find yourself when something goes really well, thanking the something. universe, something, you know, and, and then you go, okay, well, yeah, I'm definitely an atheist, but maybe there's a little part of me that's, that, that believes something. And for me, if we don't make peace with those parts of ourselves, we actually project them onto somebody else and get really angry. So when you see someone who's a theist getting really angry at an atheist, you can often get the impression that maybe they're angry at that little part of themselves they haven't made peace with. Or if there's an atheist who, you know, used to be an evangelical Christian and then em- embraced atheism, and they're really angry at evangelicals, it's weird because you'd think that they would really understand that because that's what they grew up with. But sometimes you wonder if just perhaps that little part of themselves they haven't made peace with. It's still in there and they're not actually angry with that person in front of them. They're angry with that little bit of themselves they haven't, they haven't wrestled with. So again, a lot of my work is to say, well, let's not just say there's atheists on one side and there's theists on the other. What if, if you're a theist, there's a little bit of atheism and if you're an atheist, there might be a little bit of theism and actually it's a lot more porous than we, than we first thought.
0: Oh, so good. Now I love um how often you reference Freud. Is the oh, yeah. chicken story from Freud?
1: It's from Xek, who's uh who follows uh the Freudian tradition. Yeah. I
0: heard you tell can you tell the chicken I remember you telling the chicken story somewhere live and the crowd just lost it. They loved it so yeah. much. Yeah.
1: Well I'd love to tell it and then give a little commentary on it because yeah, it's very simply, um it's a story about a guy who uh, goes into psychoanalysis because he literally thinks he's seed, little bits of seed on the ground. And so he's in analysis for months and the months turn into years. But eventually he's like, you know what? I know I'm not seed. I know I'm a human being. So the analyst thinks this is great. The guy goes away, but a few days later, he's back at the analyst's door. The guy's like, <laughs> crying, he's sweating, he's frantic, and the analyst says, what's wrong? And he says, my next door neighbors, they just got chickens. I'm terrified they're going to eat me. And the analyst said, listen, you know you're not seed. You know you're a human being. And he says, I know that, but do the chickens know that? Right? <laughs> now, well, th- this actually gets to the heart of what psychoanalysis is. Uh, My friend, Tad DeLay, who just wrote a book called God is Unconscious, talks about this. He says, imagine that you are someone who's always tried to please your father. Everything you do is is to please and win your father's affections, right? But then your father dies. Oh, so now you're freed from trying to, you know, uh, satisfy him to try to please him because he's dead, right? But actually no you're still trying to please him often and often now it's worse because there's no real father to say, oh, you shouldn't be doing that. The father is inside you. Now, you know that your father's dead, right? You know the father's dead, but there's some part of you that doesn't. Your father's voice is internalized. And so this is why for so many of us, we find ourselves not desiring what we desire. And that sounds really funny at first, but someone might be studying law And they're going, I actually don't like this. I don't like being a lawyer. I would love to have been an artist. And then they think about it and they go, my parents always wanted me to be a lawyer. So strangely, their external desire is inside you and you haven't kind of worked it through. So my argument is like, I meet people who say basically this. They say, I don't believe in hell anymore. Does that mean I'm going to go there? Right? And you go, well, what? What? You don't believe in hell, why, could you, why are you afraid that you're going to go to hell, right? But what you realize is actually that even though you intellectually don't believe in it, it's still in you in some sort of way. And that's the part that needs to be changed. There's so many people today who have given up fundamentalism, but fundamentalism hasn't given up on them. They've given up on certain notions of God, but those notions are still operating. They're still there. Just like in a society where like in Northern Ireland, where the peace process meant there was an end of violence and sectarianism, you know, became kind of invisible until there was stress, until there were lack of jobs and lack of money. And then you thought the the sectarianism was gone, but it wasn't, it just, it It flared up It went underground. And if you don't work that through, it goes underground. There's lots of people who have given up on, say, fundamentalism, but when something terrible happens, they they run back to it because they haven't worked it through. And uh, a lot of my work is about helping people who, for example, know that, that life is not about certainty and satisfaction, that they have to make peace with some parts of themselves, that they know that they've got poltergeists and they know that they need to face those things, but they just can't. My work is about saying, you know, helping people actually do, do that work, bring that stuff to the surface.
0: I, uh, you travel a lot. Yeah. I know you're all over the place. What are questions? Are there a couple of questions that you always get that are universal wherever you are in the world oh. that people are asking, that people are struggling with, that people, is there, you're taking questions from some audience, is there, are there things that you're like, Yep. That comes up every time.
1: Oh, that's a good question. Um, I, You know, funny, if what I find when I go places to speak is that people aren't really there to learn or ask any questions. The primary reason why people are there is because they feel really alone and they want to be in a room with other people who are try- on the same journey. Because... You know this as well as I do. If you want to get anything of mine, you can get it for free on the internet. You'll find my talks. So why would you ever come to an event to ask a question? You can send me an email. You can find a relevant video on YouTube. <laughs> so, so why, why, why come? Why do people travel 13 and 14 hours to hear me? They know they're going to hear the same old joke about the chicken and they, <laughs> they they know that you know that they could they could sit at home, comfort of their own home, have a hot cup of cocoa and watch something on YouTube. Why do people travel to Ireland? I do a little festival in Ireland. Why do people travel there to to spend 4 days hanging out with me? Um it's not about me. It's about going I feel alone. I feel like I'm I'm starting to question things i'm starting to question my past i'm starting to you know feel that you know there's something else but i don't have a community of people who are on that same journey and so when they come to the event they're there because just for an hour or just for a day they can feel less alone and and i know i've done well not when i speak well but when i see that people in the room are making connections Mm -hmm. that people are making friendships, that people are a little little bit less alone when they walk away than when they walked into the room.
0: That, now there is this, there is this uh, passion to your work and being your friend, by the way, Pete and I live, we live 10 minutes away from here in California. Um, Do you, there is a joy and a passion and a love of life that undergirds your work. Yeah. I mean, I say to people whenever they say, what, what do you do for a living? I,
1: I, I generally, one of my answers is, I spread doom and despair for cash, right? <laughs> I spread
0: know, doom and despair for cash. Yeah, you know, <laughs> for, or for food.
1: You know, yeah, don't mind, or for drinks. But yeah, like anybody who's read my work can go, oh my goodness, this is like, I'm trying to bring existential despair into the world. This is terrible news, right? But my work is going, Actually, what we think of as good news is, oh, you can have the answers, you can be complete, you can escape your suffering, you can run into heaven, right? And I'm saying, no, that's bad news. That's bad news, right? And then the bad news of oh, your life is difficult and you don't know the answers. That sounds like terrible news, but I'm saying, actually, that's really good news. You know, Jean-Paul Sartre, the existential philosopher, was once asked, you know, this is such a depressing philosophy, you know, how do you not like die of despair? And Sartre said, I have not had one day of despair in my life. And I thought that was a really interesting answer, that actually, yes, my work is about looking at the dark stuff. It's about looking at the difficult stuff. But the secret is actually that's, that's the key to a joyful, fun life that's why comedians are some of the most kind of depressing dark people in the world talk about talk about death see i saw c.s lewis recently not c.s lewis uh, <laughs> louis louis ck <laughs> sorry <laughs> C. Uh, I, C. I, lewis. I
0: love that that's a good one that's yeah a, that's a good what, mess up that's right an there. interesting
1: freudian slip yes no, louis ck um, I've actually been obsessively listening to uh, talks or uh, audiobooks of C.S. Lewis because I want to do a C.S. Lewis event. So, <laughs> But Louis C.K., I saw him and he spoke for an hour on death. And I'm like, there's nothing funny about that, except it was hilarious. It was brilliant. And it helped me come to terms with my own death. It helped me feel lighter. Mm -hmm. And and so for me, actually, in in America, the the true existentialists are in comedy, not in philosophy, in comedy. They're the one, singer-songwriters are the same. The ones who can sing about, I feel like if you hear an Irish singer-songwriter, they're talking about how they're they're the only one they ever loved, died horribly of the plague, and they will never never love again. You're going like, (laughs) why am I listening to this? This is so depressing. And yet, strangely, as you listen, you kind of like are able to think about your own pain and your own suffering in a way that actually brings light. See, for me, like, the two opposites are not you're either, you know, run away from your suffering, just get drunk, have a good time, forget about things. Or you listen to emo music uh, in your room with a black candle in the dark, right? Those are your two options. No, no, no. Between them, you've got the Irish pub the Irish pub is the answer is the truth anybody who wants to know what the truth of life is it's the true Irish pub which is what church should be like in the true Irish pub you have alcohol just like you do in a regular club you have music uh, you have chairs you have people but for a very different purpose If you go to a sports bar, you go there to forget about your trouble of the week. You go there just to score, just to get drunk, whatever. But in an Irish pub, you have a drink and you talk about your week. And the music isn't there to get you to forget. The music is there as a means to help you. To take you deeper into it. Deeper into it. So strangely, you talk about your tough week and your tough relationships. You hear a singer-songwriter talking about the difficulty of life or something, you know, whatever. But at the end of it, you come out feeling good. You feel alive, you feel free. So that that's, that's the secret of the work is sadly, you have to lose your life to find it. If you're trying to just run away from the darkness and the shadows, you will lose your life. But if you go into those dark and deathly places, the weird and bizarre thing, the thing that you'll never find anywhere in religion saying to loo- to find your life, you have to lose it. What religion would say that? <laughs> but, but actually <laughs> maybe that's the truth that you have to go into the place of darkness and death and despair and there
0: you'll find rays of light. And that's, what's so, so true. And it's so interesting to me how much of your work you bring us back to lose your life and find it. you bring you bring us you bring us to a resurrection life to a a life lived with a hope and joy, but it's a Sunday that you went all the way through Friday. yeah, that's one way to think about it
1: yeah i mean i wish it i wish it could be different i mean i wish i mean I wish for my life and for other people's lives you didn't have to do that. It would be wonderful to be able to get to a healthy place without going into the darkness but my work is autobiographical it's it's really my own journey and my own realization that to to find life and life before death you know it's said this before but it's not about life after death this is about life before death i everlasting life for me is not a theological question it's a scientific question scientists Uh, technologists may one day be able to basically help us live forever. I don't know if it's possible or not, but that's what they're trying to do. That we used to think that's a theological question. It's not everlasting life is a medical question. The, The theological question is, is life possible before we die? Is it possible to live in life, to experience a depth and a density to life? That, for me, is a question of faith. Um, now, mind you, if it goes on forever, brilliant. But if you can't experience the depth and density of life, then everlasting life wouldn't be a blessing. It would be a curse.
0: It would be hell, not it would be heaven.
1: hell. It would be hell. Heaven would be a place of people sc- screaming for death. I don't want to simply have longevity. I want to have depth. And, and that is what uh, my work is about. And that is why I think we need to wrestle with our our ghosts and if anybody is asking what's the practical outworking of listening to this it's difficult it's it's stop for a moment turn off the podcast after it's done uh you know take some time go out for a walk and ask yourself what are you haunted by what are the ghosts what are the things that you need to face up to and then the difficult thing is and how do you do that is it a person you have to forgive are they alive or are they dead? So can you forgive them in person or do you have to forgive them in your heart? Is it something that you need to talk to, talk through with a counselor? Uh, is it something that you need to talk to your partner about? Do you need to give up your job? It's it's tough, but but that's what I'm, I'm asking people to do. The courage to be, Paul Tillich wrote a book called yeah. The Courage To Be. The courage to be for Paul Tillich means the courage to embrace the difficult parts of our lives the courage not to be the courage to embrace the sense of guilt to the courage to embrace a sense of like i'm go, i'm dying or the sense of like things could be difficult and if we can if we can actually courageously embrace the difficult parts of our lives we will paradoxically learn how to live and live well
0: so well said this is exactly how I thought the Robcast with you would go. Oh, wow. Well, I, I'm so so <laughs> privileged to be here. The reason
1: why I'm in America is partly because of you, because you gave me a platform. After Belfast, you invited me to the U.S. to do a conference with you.
0: Well, I remember that. That yeah. was fun.
1: I still get people saying, I'm here listening to you today because I heard you, you talk with Rob. Oh,
0: yeah. that's so great. So, yeah. Well, I hope my, my uh, Robcast tribe... I'm I'm it's such an honor to introduce you to all of them and they can get yours dot peterrollins.net, peterrollins.net yeah you know what I was talking about this recently because then um, I hate the dot .net
1: I mean dot .net that's rubbish I mean why don't I have a dot .com <laughs> I was like so embarrassed and it's like well somebody bought the dot .com I missed it I forgot the payments and then after that somebody emailed me and said I bought the dot .com for you so if you type in Peter Rollins dot com you will be forwarded to peterrollins.net <laughs> so there you go that's a win that that brings certainty and satisfaction that to your is life.
0: some certainty <laughs> and satisfaction right there right there um and if people uh want to do atheism for lent with you they go oh, there yeah. go there click on
1: my speaking link and you'll find it and you can join any time even if you're join
0: a few days or a week Got into it. lent you can still sign up i'll give you all the stuff Fantastic. Um, this was just so great. All right, everybody, that is the one and only Pete Rollins, as in PeterRollins.com. dot com. Ah, grace and peace, everyone.